Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have on the show Tamar Ahmad. Now, in this conversation, we get into economics, energy, macroeconomics, and a really important question basically throughout the whole conversation was, does Bitcoin actually fix this? So there was a lot of um, conversation and a bit of debate about what Bitcoin does and doesn't do. Uh, what should we be focusing on in Bitcoin? And it was just a really rich conversation with someone who also comes from the left um, with how they view the world and different ways they want to address things like the climate crisis, wealth inequality, humanitarian issues, and things like that. So this was a really great conversation that's probably going to leave you feeling uh, more questions than answers, but a lot of times that's needed uh, in this world and in our, in our context. So I'm sure you'll be willing to uh, learn and read a bit more after this conversation. And you can check out Tamar's work as well and his Substack in the show notes um, at the bottom, whether you're listening or you're watching on YouTube. So thanks again to Tamar for coming on the show. And if you're interested, you can check out our promo links as well to SAS Mining to get a discount on Miners with SAS Mining or Jason Meyer's book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin as well. Those are in the show notes as usual. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. All right, enjoy the show and we'll see you again next week. Hey, Tamar, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to get into this conversation. I think, as I was just saying, I think there's a number of different things we can jump into here um, in terms of your background, in terms of different conversations around Bitcoin, macro, global affairs, things like this. So really excited for this conversation. And I think this will this will be a good episode. But before we jump in too much, you want to give folks a little bit of your background uh, for those who, who might not know you? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm uh, originally from Pakistan, been in the U.S. for the past few years. I just graduated, uh, finished a graduate degree at Stanford, uh, where I was focusing on international policy, uh, specifically on en- energy systems, electricity markets, climate change, stuff like that. Um, before that, I have a background in economics. That's what my bachelor's was in. And I think over the years, I've just sort of explored the spaces between heterodox economics, you know, climate change, ecological economics, that sort of space. Um, and that sort of led me to be interested in various types of topics, whether it's around money or energy, climate, Bitcoin, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, and so my work has been trying to make sense of how these things and potentially come together and what the overlaps would be. Yeah, awesome. So congrats on that. So I didn't realize you had you had graduated. That's awesome. Uh, congrats on that. Um, what, what got you into Bitcoin in the first place? Because if, you know, we'll make sure that your, uh, you know, your, your writings, your Substack, and anywhere you want to point people are up in the show notes as well. But a lot of your writings or focus are not just on Bitcoin. And a lot of them arguably probably aren't on, on Bitcoin. But what, um, what first led you into Bitcoin? Yeah, I think my story is similar to most people where, you know, you first heard about it seven, eight years ago, mine was like a thousand bucks or something. And you would say, oh, this makes no sense. This is a scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, boring at that point. Uh, but then I think in 2020, just during the lockdown, had some spare time on my hands. Uh, and I was also just interested in learning more about finance and equities and, you know, from an investment point of view more than anything. I think that's where Bitcoin first came into my purview. That oh, this is a very interesting investment opportunity. Um, and being just a risk averse person, I find it quite hard to invest in something if I don't understand what that thing is. So I, I, mm. I know when I'm wrong. Um, 
And so that initially started off the journey about, okay, I want to put my money in this and go understand what this is. And there was just so much uh, content online. Uh, I think one of the first things I used was this open course with Gary Gensler at MIT. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we went through the overview of the technology and what it means and, you know, from a governance perspective, stuff like that. I think that's what got me interested. And then at the same time, which almost independently, I was also becoming more interested in money and finance and, you know, what money is, where, where it comes from. Uh, and so those two paths were intersecting. And then I think a year or two ago, uh, the topic of clean energy, the abuse systems, how they work, you know, uh, waste energy, stuff like that was also becoming more, uh, becoming of increasing interest to me. Uh, and then I found that intersection of the Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin mining and clean energy space. So, you know, as at one point working in a startup in that space as well, I had a summer internship with a renewable energy Bitcoin miner based in the US. So I explored that area there as well. Um, and so I just found it quite useful to explore the concept from different vantage points. Uh, and some I've sort of taken with me, some I've critiqued in many ways. And mm-hmm. so I'm at that space now where, you know, I like Bitcoin, I'm definitely not anti-Bitcoin, but I, I, I do critique some specific use cases of Bitcoin. Mm. Well, I mean, I was going to ask it at some point in the interview, but why don't we jump in? Um, I mean, obviously, you know this and and many of the folks listening, you know, our target audience here are progressives. Ideally, I'd like to see some folks that are curious about Bitcoin. Maybe they've heard about crypto and then they see progressive and Bitcoin put together and they're like, wait, that doesn't that doesn't work. Or, you know, there's some skepticism already. Right. Um, I think right now, a lot of the people that are listening are are those, you know, a lot of the audience still is like progressive Bitcoiners, which are a narrow subset of that. But as we grow in more and more, I think people might stumble into the the conversation, right? Unfortunately, bear markets, bull markets, that's typically how these things go. But um, I would love to jump into some of the skepticism of use cases with you and, and maybe start our conversation there. So are there any main topics um, in terms of that skepticism? When you say that, what do you mean by that? I think primarily what I mean by that is just, uh, you know, what, what we call the Bitcoin standard and the, the concept that, you know, Bitcoin as a form of money should, will replace uh, fiat money as a concept. And then we'll have this sort of like finite supply, sound money system, you know, we will be done with the excesses of money creation and stuff like that. And then that's fixing of the monetary system will then somehow lead to uh, better changes in you know wealth inequality or inflation, uh, overconsumption, stuff like that. Um, and I, I find skepticism of that in two specific points of my argument. One is you know money, what what that is and whether Bitcoin can should be money per se. Uh, and then the second would be okay, what's the causality between fixing money and fixing other problems. Uh, and at times I think the causality in my view is almost inverse um, because of what money is as like a, a social contract, a social relation and stuff like that. Um, and so that is my sort of fundamental skepticism. I think in summary it would be to say that <clears throat> the challenges that we have as socio-political economic, and I think trying to technologically sort of solve them or abstract away from the socio-political nature of those challenges doesn't seem 
to me like the most feasible strategy to to reach the ends that we all agree on should be reached. So hence the progressive part I obviously agree with. Mm. So one one thing you said in there that I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily controversial, but you kind of, a lot of people that are into Bitcoin think Bitcoin is money, um, which it is. And it is so many different things. It's a, it's a paradigm we've never had before. I think that's part of it too, or this technology we've never had in this particular way. So can you expand on that a little bit in terms of that use case? Because I think some people will be with you on, you know, hey, we can have Bitcoin and we can have you know, fiat currencies, we can have native, you know, nation state currencies, all of these other things. Right. But when you talk about Bitcoin and money, is that, is that conflict as, as big as you're kind of suggesting that it is, um, in terms of maybe Bitcoin isn't money. What, like what, what is kind of the, the ideal use case in your mind for, for Bitcoin or what makes it really appealing to you? Yeah, I think there are many use cases and I think it comes from two, two parts of just how I see financial services in the monetary system. I think there are tons of financial services that Bitcoin can provide. So initially, I think my excitement around Bitcoin was about this notion of banking the unbanked. So people in the global south, people who don't don't have access to financial services, Bitcoin being an easy ramp up way for them to uh, be engaged in payment systems and stuff like that, right? Or having an asset they can hoard, they can use, they can spend, stuff like that. And then obviously, once that, and as that has gotten more and more established, then financial services, whether it's borrowing and lending or investments uh, into different types of technologies on top of it, like the, the financial stack built on that here becomes more and more attractive as well. So I, I genuinely think I'm fully on board with, you know, Bitcoin being one of the ways in which we expand access to financial services of people who don't have that uh, in the current system. I think the secondary case is also comes from the fact that money is is a hierarchy, right? Money is not, never just one thing. It's always a hierarchy in terms of different currencies are you know, more valuable than others. Bonds are in there. Central bank reserves are in there, whatever. And I think as part of that, Bitcoin can also be a useful monetary instrument rather than being money per se. And what I mean by that is, again, as a payment system, as something because of how big the market is and how liquid the market is, it can have instant compatibility with fiat currency, stuff like that. And the third thing I think then is for edge cases, right? You think of like you said, Lebanon, uh, maybe in stream cases, Argentina, Turkey, where there is a breakdown of the domestic monetary system. And I think in those situations and instances, having Bitcoin, again, as a way to hoard your wealth or to use it as a means of payment is a great uh, option as well. So I think all of those three situations, I definitely see the value of Bitcoin uh, and I, you know, am pro-Bitcoin and bullish on Bitcoin going forward in that perspective. It's only the, the use case where oh, Bitcoin should replace fiat currency as a whole where I sort of disagree with that. Mm, got it. And what is your, what's your main point of disagreement there in terms of is it that you don't think that is the purpose? Is it you think that would be bad? Um, what, what's kind of the main point of contention there for you in terms of, you know, Bitcoin not replacing fiat currency? I think part of it is, is more conceptual to say that, you know, I, I'm, I'm from the school of thought where money is a particular project. You know, money comes out of a complex relationship between public and private actors. 
uh, it's a legal project. It requires governance, law, uh, property values, uh, property rights, stuff like that, right? And so it always requires some form of agent who was who was exercising political authority to make money happen. And in that respect, I think I mean Bitcoin can definitely be money, right? But the way it will have to become money will have to be will will need to be through the political process or through whatever authority, whether it's the state or in earlier times, you know, religious authorities or whatever. But whoever exercises political authority we to adopt Bitcoin as money rather than the notion that at least I see in the space where, oh, it's a bottom-up process, you know, one by one, we will all choose Bitcoin's money and then we emerge as the order. And so I think there's a conceptual disagreement there where I think that anything can be money, and hence Bitcoin can also be money, but it would have to be money through the state or through that, or whatever is the political authority there. And that, in my head, sort of defeats the purpose of having Bitcoin in its current state. Um, it could definitely still be used as useful instruments. So, you know, it could be a, way, a situation where, you know, local currencies are pegged to Bitcoin the way, you know, the kind of were in the gold standard and something like that. But recognizing the fact that it comes through that theory of change, I think that's one. And the second one, I think, is more about me personally thinking that it would be bad in its current sort of uh, form as well because I just think that money needs to be something that's elastic, that can have supply that goes up and down response to changes. And also just the notion that I just don't think there can be one money for all societies and countries. Uh, as in the point, money needs to be something that is localized, domestic, contextualized. Uh, and because it's something that comes out of social relations uh, and the governance of that region, whatever the size of the region is, uh, there needs to be somewhat flexibility there. Um, and, you know, I will say in, in that respect, I think Bitcoin can also be a good commodity that is used at the international trade level. So you can have like a basket of currencies that you can use to settle international trade. You know, people, the way people talk about gold, silver, stuff like that, I definitely think Bitcoin will be a part of that, that basket as well, but just not in the everyday use of money as a means of payment and exchange and borrowing and stuff like that. Do you, do you see a potential use case of any type of like stable, stable coin-like um, project or money or anything like that? you know, backed by Bitcoin, things like this, is that, does that fall within that, I wouldn't call it a worldview, but what you're describing in terms of an effective currency, do you see a, a, a use case there in terms of, you know, stable coins backed by Bitcoin or on Bitcoin or some sort of layer that incorporates Bitcoin into that type of stable instrument? I think it could. Um, and I think the key for me is is to, to not argue more about what the form of money should be but for me, it's more of the process through which that money comes about. And so I, I think, you know, there are use cases where a, a, a lower supply of money, or, or not a lower, but a more finite supply of money, more sound money is useful. And then there are cases where more elastic money is useful. And it is about the context and the process through which that decision comes about, um, which is of more concern to me about have we fixed the, the distribution of power in society? Have we fixed the... Uh, 
uh, ownership of you know the means of production have we fixed the incentive systems in society that have then created whatever money system that is whether it's pure bitcoin or stable coins on bitcoin or bitcoin and fiat or whatever that is and i think that framing for me is more important in terms of i i don't think there's an ideal form of money for all time that times and places i think it's more about the process and what has brought that money to become money and i i think viewing the current system that we have uh you know about wealth inequality overconsumption all of those things viewing the current fiat system as a creation of a of a specific economic and social ideology helps us understand where we are more than just saying oh fiat as a concept leads to these things necessarily and i think that distinction is quite critical uh and needs to apply to bitcoin as well that bitcoin could be used for good or bad purposes is it after or you cannot say that oh bitcoin through its nature leads to x y or z because it it doesn't it's just a tool it's a technology all forms of money commodities are it's about the process and the incentives and you know ownership of resources power that stuff that defines whether the tool is used for good you know progressive or unprogressive things hmm. You've said we we're, we're what we're 16 minutes into the recording and I'm like there's a there's a book in your head there there's there's so much here there's a series we could make on what you just said um I mean first and foremost I think you're almost writing the title of this episode for me it's almost like in my head I have like does bitcoin fix this question mark um <laughs> because controversial you know what what I've seen and I, I've said that it's in many places before but I'm, I'm relatively new to bitcoin in terms of I didn't really go down the rabbit hole until like late went like very early 2021 was when i really jumped in and just kind of dove dove head first into the space so even since then i've seen a bit more robust conversation about people maybe saying you know bitcoin can start to address the problems in this way not just a blanket bitcoin fixes this right i mean there's some things that we say just as terms that are fun to loop people in right yeah. but i think people are being a little more thoughtful about the ways in which they're saying that and a lot of what you brought up one of my biggest concerns still and and Margo and I talked a little bit about this um on her episode and she brought up degrowth which I know you have thoughts on as well um you know income inequality and things like this like a deeply in the in the US something that that I think progressives and those on the left think quite a bit about bitcoin doesn't necessarily fix that and I have trouble wrapping my head around how do we address that but I think what you brought up was really wise you know there's a lot of things that bitcoin can't fix and that it's a neutral tool that can be used for for good and for bad. I think there are certain things that it addresses and it helps us start to address certain problems, but more so it also helps you think about things, think about the state, think about money, think about economics in ways I never thought about before. Um but it does push back on a lot of these these notions and you're right, we have to think about the power structures in society first. We have to think about these other things. It's not going to magically go away. on a bitcoin standard. Um I want to pull a little bit too on something you brought up in terms of you don't think it 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 would it would kind of defeat the purpose of bitcoin. I think I'm hearing you right when you say like if it were go to go through a political process, right? Where let's say I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let's say like the US like tomorrow was like okay, bitcoin standard, that's our money. They they did El Salvador but on steroids and like th- th- this is it. Are you saying that seems antithetical to bitcoin and that would not be good for bitcoin? Yeah, I'm saying that would be antithetical to the narrative around Bitcoin being a progressive tool. Mm. 
um, I think it's important to recognize that again, money comes it, it's this uh, second order concept to the power and distribution of resources in society. And I think, you know, as someone who's been a self-defined leftist for a while, and you know, who's read about the history of leftist movements, both in the early 20th century, but also in the 70s and 80s, and why, despite localized successes, it never really caught on. I think one of the things I've come to appreciate is just the power of the status quo as a system to co-opt any sort of resistance that comes in its way. Um, you know, it's you know, epitomized by the fact that, you know, you see people wearing Che Guevara t-shirts for like a dollar everywhere. Right? That is the epitome of, of a revolutionary movement being co-opted, a revolutionary figure being co-opted. Mm. And I think that sort of understanding is what I apply to Bitcoin as well if it gets adopted through the status quo, which is that there's no technology, no tool that is strong enough or even just built in and of itself to defeat that that power structure. Mm. And so, yes, adoption of Bitcoin through the status quo would be antithetical to that if, you know, Bitcoin gets adopted through a, a, a different structure, right? If, if that structure is unraveled and whatever comes next, the, the social relation of whatever comes next requires something like, like Bitcoin, I would be fully for it, right? Again, going back to the fact that a priori, it's very hard to say what the idea of the money for a specific time and place would be. Um, mm. So yeah, I think, I think that's important. I think it's important to recognize that whether it was, um, you know, commodity money uh, 100, 200, 300 years ago, whether it was fiat money, they both formed of money were, uh, who came out of political projects where the state or, or the elites were trying to impose their power on a system. Um, you know, the, the founding of the American state, the, you know, the country is a part of that struggle where, you know, the, the taxes and then the post-revolutionary, what do we do? We don't have any gold silver in America. How do we pay our soldiers? It's a, an inherent part of that struggle to recognize mm-hmm. that we're trying to, the U.S. is trying to get away from British hegemony. And that's true everywhere. Um, so I think that recognition, as you said, is, is important where the ends the means define the end, so to say. The mm-hmm. end is not predefined, and it's not just about once we get to Bitcoin adoption, it's over. It's about how we get to Bitcoin adoption that defines whether it's good or bad. Yeah, yeah, and I've been saying for a while, and mainly because I hear, hear from others as well, um, that you know, B- Bitcoin is a tool, right? Bitcoin is never the end. And when folks talk about Bitcoin as the end a lot, I think that affects mainstream adoption. That affects people actually understanding what the problems are, uh, never mind people actually like buying and owning it and, and, you know, reaping the personal benefits of it. But if we only talk about Bitcoin in these utopian ways with that at, at, as the end, of course, then people are skeptic of, about or not seeing the the human benefits of this or the planetary benefits or, or whatever. Um, as you were talking, I was pulling up a, I don't even know what to call it now, note, tweet, whatever, um, on X here. And <laughs> Andrew Bailey um, tweeted, today at the day of recording, he said, most public personalities, no matter their title, because you talked about status quo, right? So he said, most public personalities, no matter their title or purported purported profession are in fact entertainers. Their job is not to inform or produce or lead, it is to attract attention. One of these truths I work hard to accept and that it helps me understand and be at peace with the world. 
Elon entertainer, Trump entertainer, American representatives and senators, nearly anyone with more than a quarter million Twitter followers, entertainers all. I simply do not expect these people to tell the truth or be otherwise useful. I accept this and breathe easy. So I know you were talking about systems, um, but you're also mentioning status quo. And I think, and again, I want to get as well to some of your thoughts on environmentalism, because I genuinely don't know, I think, what you would think. But talking about status quo, right, one of the things, and I think one of the reasons I got so interested in Bitcoin is because I was seeing the status quo year after year. I was seeing the political process in the U.S., definitely in other nation states, not working time and time again for bettering people's lives, bettering humans' lives. The same, I think, applies to environmentalist causes, right? We've seen a lot of protests and a lot of things, whether it's Occupy, environment, and some people would just argue straight out, they've done nothing. Other people would argue, okay, they have done something. Here's the ripple effect. Here's how this conversation happened in this. Um, But I think that's one of the reasons many of us are into Bitcoin is because it might be able to start addressing some of these things in different and unique ways and use cases. Um, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin mining, whether it's different, um, you know, store value and different things like that, money transmission. But for you, speaking of status quo, I know you've had some different writings on the environment, environmentalism. What are your thoughts on environmental protest? And we'll kind of get into some of your thoughts on Bitcoin mining and, and things like that. Um, in terms of in terms of status quo, in terms of effective change there, and do you see Bitcoin intertwining with this? Yeah, I think before that, the the quote you just read uh, at the part about entertainers resonates a lot because I think one of the first times where I started questioning my own support of Bitcoin, uh, and I'm just going to call, call him out here, but I think when Michael Saylor became like the, the face of, mm-hmm. of Bitcoin adoption, I was like, really? Like, the guy's a multi-millionaire. He hoards, I don't know, one, two, three percent of supplies, some, some, you know, mm-hmm. you just never get that. Uh, and yet somehow he is going to be, be a part of this decentralized, you know, progressive, whether in a libertarian perspective or not, movement that's going to free us from corporate interests and profiteering and whatever. You know, that just seems antithetical to the mission of the movement itself, to have these, you know, as you said, people with millions of followers, entertainers, rich people in so many ways become the intellectual authorities of a movement. I mean, it, it's it's a bit confusing to me how that has caught on uh, over the past two or three years. Um, yeah, or when, El- you know, when Elon was like, oh, uh, Tesla holds Bitcoin. That was Bitcoin. the peak of it. Yeah, that was the right. peak I, of... Yeah, and that's not to mention, uh, there's so many other conversations we can bring up, like BlackRock ETFs and all of this stuff in the US, right? Um, I, I've questioned many, many times. I'm like, was is Bitcoin even successful or is the point of Bitcoin to get outside of this small peer-to-peer network that it was at its inception? You know, did it, I'm not saying did it get too big, but in terms of like, it, you know, truly peer-to-peer decentralizing this. And then once you get these giant players in, and some people have the the argument, which I totally understand that for Bitcoin to succeed and to really benefit the world, whether it's Satoshi's vision or whether it was, I, I think Jameson Lopp actually tweeted recently as well. Um, saying like most of the Bitcoin code is not Satoshi's anymore, right? The fact that, that Bitcoin has had so many evolutions since Satoshi. So that's 
one of the more brilliant things about it as well is it, it never, it's not like it is, it is Satoshi's there's it's, it's open source. It's constantly been, been worked on, um, since then. But, you know, once we get all of these players involved, are we getting too far away from, from the purpose already? But some people would say for it to actually work, it needs to be in everything. Governments need to be using it. Wall street, you, me, it, it doesn't matter across the planet. And I like similar to you, uh, the more, big figures come in, the way companies come in, um, it definitely makes me pause at the very least. Yeah, I think this is, of, uh, this is again, a bit tangential, but I think this is of overgap between how people see religion and religious movements and Bitcoin. And it's mm-hmm. not to be the typical or whatever, but in, in sociological terms almost, right? Religion also has, religious people have this contradictory belief that somehow they are pure, to what was there thousands of years ago, and also have adapted and you know you have this figureheads and whatever at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's this pure vision it's supposed to you know fix everything, while somehow it's also adapting to modern day problems and, and you know challenges and changes. And you have these figureheads who are you know rich and famous and this claim to say all the right things and people sort of follow them and like, it's just contradictory in so many ways. And I think mm-hmm. Bitcoin has gone through a similar. And it's not just Bitcoin or, or religion. I think all social people, people movements go through this process of figureheads and, you know, Marxism definitely has gone through the process of, oh, did Marx actually say this, you know, 200 mm-hmm. years ago? And uh, if not, then we can't, you know, be on board with this while also saying that, oh, you know, modern day environmental problems or financial problems require uh, an adaptation of the original thing. You know, both cannot be true at the same time. And both of need to be true at the same time. You have to find a way that is flexible, adaptive, but also recognizing that there are some pure principles that are more important than, than adoption, right? That's my, mm-hmm. my overt view in general, that even if it comes at the cost of adoption of any movement, not just Bitcoin, it is worth pushing back against, you know, ceremonial figureheads and people who are trying to jump on that bandwagon and who don't share your values or you should be skeptical of but just mm-hmm. because it pushes your movement forward it should not be accepted yeah and i mean it, it's similar mindset to me but you know one of my least favorite concepts as well is the the single issue voter with with bitcoin um, oh, yeah. in 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 politics drives me nuts um from day one when i've heard that right because there's a lot of what's great about bitcoin like we cannot and it's kind of ironic because right, I'm running this progressive Bitcoiner podcast, but in the context of, I think there's needs to be diversity of perspective and voices in the Bitcoin media landscape. Not because I think Bitcoin is a tool of the Democratic Party or progressive values, or and this this podcast has no party association. We're talking about values here. Bitcoin is neutral and a tool, right? There are a lot of people that hold, use, and talk about Bitcoin that I would vehemently disagree with. And we don't share the same values, right? Just because you're into Bitcoin does not mean our values are the same. And I think, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it in terms of like, that can also be the beauty of like, Bitcoin is not a value system in that regard. It is not, you do not have to be a single issue voter to be into Bitcoin. Like the more we can hit home first in terms of this podcast, hey, if you're progressive and skeptical, you don't you don't need to be. Like here are some of the other things that might align with your values as a progressive okay once you're there then realize 
Bitcoin is a neutral tool, let's get into some of the nuances that you and I are talking about now, which is people can use Bitcoin for good and bad. Bitcoin won't fix everything, right? So this episode, even just our conversation here, I wouldn't necessarily recommend to someone who's brand new to Bitcoin, right? But I also want to get into some of these nuanced conversations um, on Bitcoin especially with, with a value system. Hi everyone, hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use, and it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the Bitbox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank Bitbox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Yeah, and that's right. And I think people sort of, I've heard other people say what you just said as well, uh, but then not extend it going forward by saying, you know, the same applies to money as a concept, for example. Hmm. where you know you can have different values different contexts but then recognizing the fact that it's very hard to say from the onset what the ideal form of money is for all for all, all kinds of spaces right and just i think acknowledging that right again that's true for money that's true for political systems that's true for economic systems it's very hard to just be like oh this is what humanity in this weird aggregate that we are showing of life, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, I would be the first one to say that leftist movements and Marxist movements have gone through the same struggle, which is to say, you know, how can we apply this developed Western theory to underdeveloped non-Western countries? And, you know, there's been different versions of that, but just like those movements, Bitcoin also has to go through that process of understanding that money... Mm. Is a is a socio political project, and because the socio political dynamics and relations and history and context of each time and space is different, henceforth money has to be different. Uh, and that with Bitcoin, without Bitcoin, with Bitcoin in various forms of you know Bitcoin adoption and so on and so forth. Mm. I can imagine that you might get frustrated listening to a lot of Bitcoin podcasts because a lot of the things you're talking about are very nuanced. Like even this, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but for folks listening, you might tell, at least for me, I'm bouncing around a lot. It's because everything you're saying is you're unpacking like semesters worth of courses that really taking time to, to get into the nuts and bolts of economic systems, money, this and that. There's not a great, like, 30 minute soundbite on Bitcoin in the conversation we're having. But I really, I really like that. I think that's being real and honest about what Bitcoin is and isn't, what money is and isn't. And you saying, is there an ideal form of money for the world and for humanity at so many different times and contexts that that is that is universal, right? I mean, another age-old question of how long would Bitcoin last, right? We understand how long in terms of the actual mining and rewards and how many Bitcoin will be in circulation. There's so many concepts. There's so many, so many different things. What else will come up at different times and different places? And what will this look like? What will this look like interplanetary? What all of these other things that I have no idea. Like I'm staring into a void um, with, with so many, so many different things here with with Bitcoin, um, and yeah. even just in, in in this conversation as well. And I, I want to go back to before I forget one of the uh, 
the points you made saying, you know, being kind of in this leftist camp or these views, where did those views originate for you? So I know you said you've been in the U.S. for a couple of years, right? Or, or, or through grad school and you're originally from, from Pakistan. Where did these uh, views originate for you? Uh, well, I suppose I'm going to have to ask that question. Uh, it's a funny story. I was in, in high school. I was preparing for my sociology exams. And at the back end of that book that was out of course, it was just there, uh, there's a chapter on Marx. Uh, and I read that chapter and, you know, Pakistan has like a host of uh, economic brutal problems throughout my whole childhood there, my afternoon there and so on. Just at that age, it just resonated with me that, oh, this makes mm-hmm. so much sense as a framework to understand what my city and country seem to be going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you and give then, a context for like the environment? Did you grow up more like in like a neighborhood context, like a very urban context, more rural, oh. like in, in Pakistan? Yeah, a uh, very urban context, uh, definitely from the privileged class of Pakistan, uh, mm. urban for sure. Um, and I think uh, a space, is, I think Pakistan, as well as most other countries, at a time when there was a lot of political conversations, but ide- ideology wasn't a concept. I think that the mm. thing that's changed over the past 10 years, just in me being in college and in grad school and whatever, is that people now have openly expressed their ideologies. I'm, I'm X and Y and Z. When I was growing up, I think when all of us were growing up, it wasn't a thing to say that you were, you know, supporting a political party. But this concept of being Austrian or Marxist or libertarian just wasn't in conversation. So I found that exploration into this ideology to be fascinating. To be like, oh, this is a different framework to which to, you can analyze uh, things that are going on. Um, and then I think just read books on, uh, you know, Castro and Jay and some of the other, mm-hmm. and, you know, I found those were quite inspirational, but then also there was just a historically a very strong overlap between anti-colonial movements, which for me was a very important topic, I'm just mm-hmm. uh, and, and leftism. And I think mm-hmm. that overlap just fit pieces of the puzzle together in my head. Um, and I think over the course of my you know, intellectual development, the more more and more topics that I've explored, environmentalism being one of them, I've somehow found ways to fit those pieces of the puzzle together in a way that is always left to an aha moment mm-hmm. for me. Um, and, you know, we might talk about this later, but the most recent one that actually just happened like last summer was, you know, before last summer, I always used to say, okay, I have, you know, eco-socialist beliefs, but degrowth makes just scientific sense, arithmetic sense to me. And I have no idea how those two come together because they are in theory quite different. But just last summer, you know, there are a few books that came out on eco-socialism and degrowth and the overlap between them, and there was an aha moment there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sort of way of just understanding again that you know it's very hard to read marks and find everything you're looking for you just have to take pieces and fit them to your context and you know find what works and that's how movements and ideologies keep going mm-hmm. uh, and you know there's no point being pure about anything because there's nothing everything that mm-hmm. we create as humans is, is impure and has to change over time so um yeah i think coming to terms with that has helped me maintain an ideological belief system while also being able to adapt to new topics and you know, changes in the status quo that we face. Mm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I had a similar journey, literally sociology classes in high school, and then I was a sociology undergrad. And for me, that was a lot of the Marxist um, undertone um, in, in my education as well. And I think, but again, people will be like, oh, Marx oversimplified this and that. Every economist, every thought leader, every movement, in a way, can oversimplify or, or people will argue, oh, it's an oversimplification or this is too much of their focus. That That's their focus. It's really hard to be a, a really good interdisciplinary thinker. There's only a small handful every generation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so few charismatic leaders in the world that change the, the shape of human history. So it's a really hard thing to not have a focus on a specialty. But, you know, what I'm hearing you say is just every, in everything, be adaptive. And that includes Bitcoin, which has a really zealot ardent following and group of people that are that are supporting it very conservatively in terms of our protocol approach it's very good to be conservative in that regard but conservative culturally ideologically politically and i don't mean right wing i mean just in terms of not having that be adaptive to the world's problems um is is very problematic and i think a lot of the things you're you're talking about can be very appealing to people that are that are skeptical of Bitcoin um, in a new way. So, I mean, with that, have you have you had conversations with folks about? And I, and I can imagine you interweaving it in in terms of these conversations. Have you had uh, conversations with folks, whether at Stanford, whether anywhere else, um, about Bitcoin and these complexities in this way? And what is what is some of their thoughts and feedback? I wouldn't say your views are unorthodox. I'm not saying I've heard anything here that I'm like, wow, that's really out there, um, but still are there you know what what are some some points that people have have thought from what you said i think the funny thing over the past two years is my interactions on twitter where you know i have this community of, of bitcoin people who i've been talking to for a few years there is always like oh this guy doesn't get bitcoin he's anti-bitcoin or whatever mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the real world people are like oh this guy is like a bitcoin bro he's like a crypto bro or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's been interesting trying to find those two. So you make no friends in any context been, yeah, in terms my, of Bitcoin, my, right? My real, you know, my, my in-person friend at Stanford has always been like, why are you like this crypto bro person? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not like that. So it's been hard to you know, balance those two uh, together. Um, I, I do think that over the past two years, especially in 2021 and early 2022, when the bull market was fully underway, I mean, the amount of shitcoin projects that I saw on Stanford campus was like a plugin. Mm. You know, like all kinds of DeFi projects being uh, pitched and stuff like that. Um, and that just made me more and more resolute about Bitcoin being a singular sort of special currency or, or you know, cryptographic project in that perspective. Um, and I think some of my conversations there were more about okay, Bitcoin is different in XYZ way and stuff like that. Um, and I think, you know, as you said, adoption and conversations are a function of price. And because price has been low and stagnant for the past year, it's been hard to have conversations with people. Um, but also, I think the one thing that has changed is just over the past year, I think 2022 specifically and then 2023 have been, here, have been the two years of, you know, tail risk, and, and panics, and there's been so much going on in the world. People don't really have, I would say, the time or the mental capacity anymore to talk more about conceptual existential things. So whether it's on the weather and climate side of things, 
of others on financial crises, you know, debt crises, inflation, shortages in the global south and stuff like that. Um, you know, people have become a lot more um, in tune with immediate crises that we're facing. And of course, rightly so, because they are the need of the hour. And I, find, I found that the space for conversation in some of these more conceptual topics, whether it's Bitcoin or just broader systemic change in general, has become smaller um, mm. over time. But I think that's, that's been challenging to how you weave together people's immediate um, crises and worries and anxieties with some of these more conceptual um, topics and, and solutions. Mm. Is it is it easier as well? Because I know you have some some thoughts and different things you've written as well. Just about, I mean, I hate this this term because it, it it acts as if there's a singular. It's kind of like when people say Africa, global South. There's so many different contexts for Bitcoin or for you know, state failure or for humanitarian crises, environmental crises, there's so many different contexts. But when you think about different participants in the global South or or different communities that are using Bitcoin in a really, really peer-to-peer way or transitioning their wealth across state lines and and different things like this, where in the U.S. just there just isn't a context for for Bitcoin. You know, arguably would say we don't need Bitcoin in in so many ways, right? We We have PayPal, we have, okay, people's bank accounts. We don't have hyperinflation. There's so many different things to where people are like, yeah, you crypto bro. And I get why they're still saying that to this day. And I hope there's not really a a case where there's some societal meltdown and you're trying to grasp onto something that will hold any value so that you can, you can live. Like I, I, I hope and, and don't see that, that occurring, um, anytime soon and hopefully not in our lifetime. But do you, do you think those conversations are a little bit easier when you focus on specific projects and specific concepts or townships and townships in South Africa that are focusing on this or, or anything like that um, beyond the conceptual conversations? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I sort of experienced that firsthand. Um, at one point in 2022, uh, a friend and I we were working on this startup idea for Bitcoin mining and renewable energy microgrids in, in countries like Kenya. Mm-hmm. And just in pitching that idea, both to investors, but also just to explaining that to friends. I think it was a way that it made a lot more sense to people in specific contexts. So, you know, okay, you don't need to worry about Bitcoin's issuance policy or whatever. You need to understand how, you know, we can monetize waste energy through Bitcoin mining and how that can create a source of revenue for this, uh, you know, rural impoverished community in Kenya, for example. Or, you know, there's this company, whose name I've got now, in South Africa, who use Bitcoin mining as a way to install solar panels for schools and hospitals and stuff like that. And I think those specific projects help people, um, you know, disassociate their politics or their whatever their worldview is from a specific use case. And once you explain to them the mechanics of that use case, uh, people are more willing to take a step forward. I think uh, in financial services, again, uh, it's been similar where, you know, I've, I've personally heard projects from Nigeria and Kenya and, you know, somewhat, I think, in countries like India, talk more about how can we create a payment system for people who have a smartphone, don't have a bank account and stuff like that, um, for a payment system for those people without the risk of censorship, uh, because that is a big problem, obviously, where... Mm-hmm. 
you know, things like MPESA or whatever are at risk of censorship from from government action. And so how can we do that? How can we make it super easy for people? They don't, again, need to be concerned that much about the security of the network or the issuance policy or whatever. You just need to know that here's this thing, um, you know, somewhat appreciates overvalue over time in your local currency, you know, with volatility or whatever. You can easily send this back and forth with your friends, both in country and outside country. Um, and I think at that level, it, it's, I personally have just seen more people make a compelling case for, mm-hmm. for Bitcoin adoption. Um, I, I think that's also why I always say at the start of the conversation, as I did with this one, is that those are good use cases, I think. Mm. They're contextualized, they're localized, the mechanics of those use cases makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I think you know there's a lot of good things to be bullish on over there. Mm. Do you, you might not have a strong opinion on this, but do you think there's any use cases or anything that's being pursued, whether it's in the US, you don't have to, I'm not saying specific people or specific companies, but where it seems like there's a lot of thought and intention being put into Bitcoin on certain issues or certain use cases where you think it's more of a waste of time or maybe our energy should be focused in other places concerning Bitcoin? I I will say that, yes. I think in terms of, again, people spending the energy in uh, intellectual capital where, or how does Bitcoin replace fiat and what does that look like? You know, to me, I, I think that there's so many other compelling use cases where the proof concept is already there. Some of mm-hmm. them have already scaled up um, that require their effort. I know this is not to say that there should not be diversity of thought, people should not be pitching different innovative ideas out there. But I think, you know, I've been a part of this community in so many ways in terms of Twitter interactions or listening to all these podcasts and stuff like that. And my sense is that the, the focus is still on how do we replace the whole monetary system with Bitcoin and what is that too? I think that is still the central narrative that brings people uh, to the space and holds them together versus some of these smaller side projects that people might think of, but they are driving real impact, have proof of concept. Um, and you know, one potential counter argument someone might make here is that, okay, we are talking about systemic change and that's like a one size fits, fits all type of situation. You know, the scale is so much bigger. Once we get to that level, things will be fixed. But I think, you know, as we were talking about in the first part of this conversation, there are just so many nuances there that mm-hmm. get steamrolled in those conversations and never really get talked about. That I think the value add becomes marginally lesser versus the value add of, of this adoption. Censorship resistance, payment services, banking, the bank type of stuff. Mm. So are your use cases still focused basically on monetary systems and, and value? I mean, there's all the other, you know, layer twos, layer threes, there's all of the other use cases as, oh, it's a ledger and there's certain block space and we're renting block space, right? Um, you're trying to get into that block space and anything can be put in there. Things can be wrapped, different, different content besides just money. Do you think there's any... I don't want to say value, but do you see that, or are you you singularly focused when you're thinking about Bitcoin as, you know, monetary transmission, store value, interacting with global finance, maybe like you said, you know, nation state payments and things like that. Um, do you see anything outside of that monetary system? 
I think at some point I was quite interested in okay, what are some of the things uh, that can be built on top of Bitcoin as a stack. Um, but I think at some point I, over the last couple years, I just gave up on trying to develop strong perspectives on those. Um, and you know, I sort of double down on the the dual focus areas of money and energy and the environment, um, uh, and just sort of really sort of getting to the nuances there because you know everyone's talking about them, everyone seems to have an opinion about them. Um, so that's just been my focus area for the past mm. few years. Yeah, I think I sh- I think I share that view as well, and I, I do want to jump into the the environment stuff as well. And one thing that's that's top of my mind personally is, you know, being kind of historically from the left, focusing on this, um, the environment, climate change, this focus is a huge focus for me in terms of values, right? Um, And one of the things that took me a while to figure out and understand how Bitcoin can kind of address some of these things, right? Um, Bitcoin doesn't fix our our climate and global warming and and things like this, right? But also getting into Bitcoin, and maybe it's because I'm frustrated with the political process, but I've been more and more frustrated with environmental activists, um, obviously Greenpeace and things like that. And that's kind of a separate yeah. conversation. I think that's the influence that's kind of back to the tweet of what Andrew was talking about, in my opinion. But I mean, there are quite a few global environmental activists who are really out, out there trying to bring awareness to this. They're doing talks in large theaters in London, in Paris, in New York, all over the place, right? And I'm really, really still at the point of of questioning and wondering if that has or is doing anything, period. And if we need more, hate to say it from this leftist camp in a lot of ways, but like market-based solutions, companies doing product fits that actually start to address um, our climate crisis and the environment and things like that. You know, where, where do you fall in terms of thinking about activists and thinking about maybe the, some of the things that you've learned from Bitcoin in terms of the environment? Yeah, I think on the environment, the, the numerous ways to come at this, uh, and the first way I would come at this is to say, you know, uh, scientists specifically and activists as well have been talking about this topic since the 70s and 80s for sure. You know, with the first gimmicks of growth uh, publication, you know, there's uh, evidence now about shell exon scientists ha- having knowledge about the effects of global warming in, in the 80s. And I think mm-hmm. even before that, um, you can find people talking about the consequences of air pollution are, are um, uh, land use change and what has what implications that has on biodiversity, soil health, and so on. Yeah, at the, the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think there's a new book uh, on eco-socialism by Kohei Saito, who you know has found writings of Marx as well about towards the end of his life, he was concerned with soil health through extractive farming and agriculture. And so, I mean, as a concept, you know. We've known about this for a while. I think the reason I'm as frustrated as you are with the lack of movement and progress on this issue, I think one of the reasons is connects to that lack of ideology that we've had over the past 50 years, where it's been this sort of side issue or this isolated issue. And because we haven't had as a society uh, ideological frameworks to connect different issues to a singular system, people have failed to develop uh, solidarity across movements. So for example, you know, there's obviously, in my view, it's obvious there's overlap between damage to the environment 
uh, with with trafficking, with overconsumption, with the restructuring of of labor unions, uh, and you know wages, with extraction in the global south stuff. But they are all part of a singular system. And I think because we haven't had the language to express that as part of a singular system, as part of one ideology, it's been hard to find overlaps between these camps. And I think even today, you find this. You know, people view this as a dichotomy, as a trade-off that we can either fix the climate or we can work on development and well-being and inequality. We can't do both, which to me is a completely a false dichotomy um, and should not be put off uh, in, as these two ways. And I think people who are definitely climate-denying, right-wing people, like Alex Epstein, play on this dichotomy by saying, Oh, you want to stop using fossil fuels? What will happen to the poor in the global south who need air conditioning, for example? And that is a false dichotomy completely from the outset. So I think that's one uh, angle in which the movement part hasn't done well to take the science and connect it to people's lives, people's real issues, uh, incomes, well-being, rights, mm-hmm. and so on. I think the second part, and here I think I might disagree with you, because uh, if I heard you say correctly, you were talking about market solutions. I think over the past 10 years, um, the climate movement has, in my view, become co-opted by private companies as this, you know, it's the next wave of advertisement specifically. You know, what can we do to be carbon neutral? What can we do to be green and stuff like that? Uh, without actually uh, responding to the science, which talks about excessive resource extraction, excessive, excessive consumption, excessive waste. Um, driven by like, this unquenchable thirst for profit and stuff like that. Mm. And so I think that combination of the two things where the movements, you know, they're doing better now, but for the most part, failed to make those connections. And now this co-option of this narrative by private sector agents or the elite to, you know, greenwash themselves and be woke as like this precarious situation where it's very hard to see what the step forward is. Because as you said, right, the political process we know is captured by the elites and doesn't work, right? The the companies and the people who control our resources, whether it's energy resources, raw materials, finance, supply chains, you know, are part of that system as well. And they have, you know, somewhat co-opted the green narrative. At the same time, there they really isn't the basis for a strong social movement to counter that. So where do we go from here? Yeah, I think that question is, you know, the question facing um, people who are concerned about the climate and inequality, whatever, at the same time. You know, I, I have this week somewhere, I don't know who, but some climate scientist recently, where he was like, we don't need any more climate books, for example. You know, mm-hmm. we know what the problem is. Okay, scientists can do their own thing, obviously, but the 50th climate book talking about heat waves and whatever isn't going to do anything, right? We know what the problem right. is and what we do. The, the singular focus now needs to be on how do we get the broad support uh, to make it happen. Um, and I think in those ways, now i just end on this point, uh, I think in, in those ways is imperative for people, for people like us specifically, right, who, who are educated and have the privilege to create content, I would say, um, to find overlaps between all these different topics and make people realize that it is actually not do I fight against climate change or inequality or 
but censorship or you know global south democratization or whatever they are all part of a singular effort um and that's how systems and power structures work Mm. i think when i was talking about market stuff as well and i think it's because kind of the the biggest metaphor (laughs) i think about in life and i think it might be my cynicism with a lot of things i've seen for a while now is the trojan horse theory and you can apply that to so many things but the trojan horse theory and in, in Bitcoin, which isn't some original thing, but I, but I heard Alex Gladstein kind of beat his drum about this um, the most initially um, in terms of like taking the way the world is, right? Because this world isn't, isn't changing the, the, the power dynamics, the influencer dynamics that, that I was referring to, government, states, centralization, all of this isn't changing overnight. So how do we take it as is and use that? Right. And so what I'm saying market, it might be like, how can a company profit off of Bitcoin mining using flared methane that will actually help reduce the most harmful emissions in our climate? Like, how do we how do we do that? And that that might help point zero 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 one percent and at least be somewhat beneficial. Then how do we replicate that and create a wave? So because right now what I'm seeing in terms of governments, in terms of activists, in terms of some of the things we've been talking about is every year, again, not to oversimplify, but the planet is getting warmer, like weather is more extreme Um, this this summer, especially, right? And like you said, scientists are saying, been saying these things for so long. We don't need another book on it to understand what what is the the macro problem we're trying to deal with here. Now, solutions are complicated for sure. So that, that for me is like, maybe it's just because I'm running out of steam trying to think of other, other ways to, to help. But I'm like, let's let's use, you know, whatever negative things in this world, greed, um, people's egos, competition, some of these things have been so harmful from a leftist perspective and just utilize that. And we're not tricking anyone. We're not deceiving anyone, but kind of using that to address some of these issues. And, you know, the, the climate is one. Yeah, I think the one thing that I've learned recently over the past you know, couple of years you know, has been what do we think of as the market and the state? Uh, so I'm going to take a step back and become a little more conceptual here, but, you know, as you will hear leftists say, and as I used to think until recently, you know, markets are bad and states are obviously not good, but states can be good and that should be the, the focus area for us moving forward. I think through... And this actually happened through exploring the topic of money and what money is and where it comes from. This notion that actually they are not a dichotomy. Escapes and markets are this, uh, this symbiotic relationship where one cannot resist without the other. And in some ways, escapes create the market, whatever market that may be, through property rights and contract law and, and money. Right? And money comes out of money is the marketplace in and of itself, so it comes out of this process as well. And I think why that is important to mention in the environmental context is, again, we have this notion of, you know, either the state, some people say, okay, the state needs to like nationalize everything, control production and consumption, and that's the way out of it. Other people, uh, for different reasons, one of them being, being your reasoning is we need to, you know, move market forces in this direction through whatever means possible. And I think and in some ways, the past one year with the Inflation Reduction Act has shown that 
they move together, right? Like the, the huge bill pass, the huge government incentives and investment coming to clean energy has activated markets to move in that direction as well, right? So that is states who through either their regulations and policies or through their investment uh, and you know, running deficits and where they put those deficits and so on, create specific markets. And so then the question for environmentalists is, um, you know, and I think the most pernicious thing actually, underneath all of this, the most pernicious thing has been mainstream economic principles that have distorted everyone's worldview, whether they're on the left or the right, we all believe the same myths about how the economy works. <clears throat> about, you know, supply demand curves and, you know, governments borrow money and banks and immediate money, where does money come from? We don't know, it just exists, it's just there. You know, like, we all suffer from the same issue. And so countering those myths, I think, is one way to develop action and recognize the range of tools we actually have to catalyze change. I think, you know, there has been progress post-COVID in recognizing, at least in the U.S., the ability of the state to galvanize markets in certain directions. And there's obviously the risk there of that being used for the wrong things, uh, because, you know, as we agree, the state is, is captured by a handful of people. But that, for me, just makes the case even more of, of reforming the state as, as it exists today. Right, this thing has all these tools uh, as 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 the creator of money, as uh, the creator of regulation and governance, as this as the single single biggest organizing agent in a complex system, and so we need to use those tools for for better ends, basically. And that I think is a struggle that needs to be this the focus area, and that will then also lead to changes in the money system and whatever. And, you know, this almost comes full circle to being maybe to achieve that end, uh, to achieve the ends of this reform state, we then have Bitcoin as money in different, you know, shapes and forms. And so this is like, you know, coming full circle about the fact that the state is and always has been, and in different shapes and forms of this case, is and always has been the organizing agent of a complex economy and society. And, you know, apart from that, the, the, the anarchist theory, I don't think there's a way to move beyond that directly. You know, there's a way to maybe move beyond that once we have some of these immediate challenges, you know, not hitting us in the face. But, you know, I, I've come to accept the fact that these challenges we face are so big uh, and so pressing and the system is so complex that's hard to see how individual decentralized actions can create change at the scale and the speed that we need them to, and that we do need uh, a better version of the state to use this organizing uh, capabilities and power to make that happen. Mm. Well, you know, my next question is going to be, how do we reform the state? What what does that look like if you had a, a pitch for even what what steps to take to do this? Because... I don't think people oversimplify in Bitcoin because, I mean, some people do it for influence, audience capture, all of these things. And to be honest with you, I think it's blatantly clear who, who's doing that. And there are a large number of people doing that. And this crypto politics anywhere, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, it's the same phenomenon. But 
you know, I, I think a lot of people might oversimplify because they're so desperate to find solutions to these problems. And if you can wrap it in a nice, neat box or say, this fixes this, or if we do this in five years, this, that's nice. If not, you can stay awake at night thinking, and you're, a, it seems deeply philosophical. And, and for me, studying sociology early on left me very comfortable in this gray space with way more questions mm-hmm. than answers forever, probably. But how do we start? Because you said reform the state. A lot of people would say, we need to abolish it. We need to work in more of an anarchist movement, even even from the left, especially from the left, right? Kind of thinking in that context. How do we begin to, what would reforming the state look like when you say that? Yeah, I think you're, you're very right about the fact that some people, and I put myself in that camp, are very comfortable with having more questions than answers. I you know, thrive on that sort of like gray space because, you know, I think, I personally sort of use that gray space to think that, oh, I'm not sure of what to do, so I'm just going to think about this. And that's obviously not going to change the world, right? The world will be changed through action and not through thought. So I think the need for heuristics to make it simple for people is the task at hand. And I think, so the heuristic for reforming the state should be about the fact that what creates change, both, you know, what creates the, the injustice that exists today and hence will create a better world tomorrow is who owns the real resources and the material resources that we need to survive. And I think reform the state can be simplified to the fact that the current version of the state creates a system where it protects and enables the few to control those resources. And we need to push back against uh, against this notion of the state as some neutral body that, you know, is, is whose hands are tied, you know, like they have to borrow from banks, so what can they do? You know, they don't have money. They have to be uh, benevolent to uh, political donors and stuff like that because they don't have money for finance and stuff. I think recognizing, and debunking some of the myths I was talking about uh, a few minutes ago, recognizing the powers of the state has creates a more of a direct link between the people in the state to be like, you know, we don't believe that you need to use all the excuses about, oh, we have to borrow money and do all this stuff from banks before making things happen. There's a direct theory of change here from people to the state. And I think reforming the state means putting pressure on governments at all levels, from local governments right up to the executive about we don't buy any of these excuses anymore. They are myths. Uh, there's enough evidence, both uh, you know, empirically, but also conceptually, that this proves this myth. And so we want direct action. Uh, and you know, direct action is this word that's used by civil society about doing things. But I think direct pushing the state to do direct action, the way they have done somewhat through the Inflation Reduction Act, although it's been countered by what I think the, the largest number of oil and gas drilling permits for any administration or something like that. Mm-hmm. But recognizing the state has that power to do that, right? In, in both ways. And so, yeah, to simplify, I think reforming the state means not, not being constrained by those myths and seeing them as excuses, but pushing, uh, putting pressure on the state to do direct action in some of these areas that we need them to do it is, mm-hmm. is maybe the immediate way to do it. And then I think in general, 
across the world, I think the systems that we have in place, uh, you know, came into being for a specific socioeconomic ideology. And then those through both external pressure, by which I mean pressure from food energy shortages and stuff like that, and then also internal pressure uh, needs to be, will naturally change. And I think the question is more about there is change coming. And I, I sort of believe this strongly, is that the window for change is, is here and it's opening up. And so change is coming. The question for, for us is, can, can we navigate those agents of change towards more progressive ends? Or do we, as it was in the earlier, earlier 20th century, will those agents of change be uh, you know, used or co-opted by more fascist sort of tendencies? Um, and I think recognizing that is quite important that we almost don't need to bring about change. Change is already at our door. The question is where, you know, which door? Or which side of the door it goes through. Mm. And last question on that thought: How do you? What do you think motivates people to address this change? Because again, I, it's so hard to tie it to one context. But we'll say in the U.S. context, right? There's there's not a ton of motivation at this point, right? In terms of there is a lot of poverty in this country. There is a lot of hard things, right? But but for the most part, most people are not engaged. Most people are not seeing things as problems. Or if they're seeing things as problems, they're believing in lies um, about what what causes the problems, right? Or they're being told half-truths or they're getting upset about things and voting on things that actually won't improve their lives. It's ideologically driven. Um, in the U.S., it's, it's terrible and will only continue to get worse in this next political cycle. Um, so I'm, I'm very weary of, of that and very worried about that in the U.S. context. I, I agree. I think a lot of people you know, step one, people can understand something's not right here. But step two is uh, addressing that and that window for change and which direction, um, even though it will never be that simple, but w- where are we headed? So for you, how can we, how do, how do people get motivated? How can we motivate people to um, want to address it in the first place in a, in a healthy way? Yeah, I think people get motivated through community. I think there's this, again, this, this, economist myth, uh, which is almost an enlightenment myth about this individual rational agent that gets motivated through being convinced irrationally about something. I think that myth has done so much damage to not just movements uh, and you know the lack of movements now, but also to people and their, their, their psyche, their mental health. And I think that's why there's so much despair and anxiety where, you know, as you said, people recognize there's something wrong. But rather than that being a motivational uh, factor, it becomes uh, a source of anxiety and despair and, and depression. And I, I think that's because of individualism and people feeling alone or this is only happening to me or what can I do about it in the face of this massive uh, system. I think the only way to motivate people is through movements, through communities, to making people to, it's not just about, you know, we say, oh, how do you connect a farmer in the Midwest to an urban, uh, an urban uh, poor in New York, for example, right? It's not just about making them both realize that both, they are victims of the same system. Then also real ways, if you think about, and I think about this in the U.S. a lot, actually, the, the urban design of, of U.S. cities 
is designed to be so individualistic, where you are so far apart from from people and communal spaces and so on, right? So, so how do we create spaces where people see not just interact more, but they see each other and their lives more? And through the act of I think seeing and experiencing each other's lives, people naturally form uh, develop uh, not just you know sympathy or empathy, but a sense of understanding of how similar they are and the struggles that they have versus mm. sort of academically trying to convince people that, oh, you have the same struggles, you should be part of this movement. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, academically people try, you know, whatever. And I think that's part of why things like Occupy and so on haven't really kicked off, even though they were obviously saying all the right things. But because in people's everyday lives, they don't have that source of community or that source of recognizing that, you know, my neighbor has a different problem, I have a different problem, but, oh, we're talking about the same things as the source of our problems, you know, what's up with that, stuff like that. I think that is the challenge of how do we create spaces for people to see and hear each other more and, and create some sort of sense of hope and community and movement through that. Hmm. Yeah, and my, my hope is that regardless of whether in the context of Bitcoin, regardless of how much Bitcoin someone has, how much they get in, involved with it or researching it or this and that, that uh, on its best day that, that Bitcoin and those who talk about it and advocate for it, talk about it in the way of community, talk about it in the way of there's a lot of problems in this world and it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't mean that Bitcoin fixes everything or fixes that specific thing or that this is the answer, right? But it's it's starting with these are some of the problems, but we can, you know, we, we can build a community, we can talk together, we can, we can advocate, we can push, we can use these inalienable rights, we can use a lot of these things in the context of the US, but, but many nations to bring about change. And I think reminding people of that, because even as you were saying that, like, I know this, but even as you just said that, I left feeling a little bit more hopeful than I did five minutes ago about this. And I, I know what you're saying, and, and I get it. And Maybe it's because I'm spending too much time staring at certain things that are problems. Because again, I joke like I'm always like an amateur sociologist, but really thought I was going to kind of build that into a, a PhD before I went in a different direction with nonprofits, but um, got really good at studying and identifying problems. And still that kind of carries with me to this day. I really like looking at problems, identifying problems, but solutions. I'm like, he might want to ask someone else. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure I'll be here to point out the problem. Um not really. I think I'm getting a little bit better on that. But for me, Bitcoin has created a, a bit more optimism, right? Not not because of like Bitcoin itself, but I think also the other things it's eliminated or introduced me to other communities and ways they're doing things around the world. Um, and, and I think that's really cool. But I, I think I agree with you with with what you're saying. Finding yeah. that community is, is really hard. Um, and I think people have to be really intentional about it for that to happen, though. Yeah. I think on the, on the Bitcoin part, I would say in that essay series I wrote for Bitcoin Magazine last year, I mean, it was like a very, very long critique of Bitcoin. But the, the, the first few paragraphs were acknowledging the fact that the Bitcoin community has done something which I think is quite exceptional, which is create this sense of shared values, at least in the first principle sense, right? On other social mm-hmm. issues, as we said, we disagree with so many Bitcoiners. Sure, but yeah. in those first principles and, and the notion of just like, okay, we're occupying this space, even though it's, you know, used to be a digital space and now there's so many of these physical spaces where we can meet up and talk about these topics but you know just the act of doing that 
has created this window for people who did not think about money or the state or you know whatever or banks and stuff like that. It's created that window of opportunity for people to do that and to, to think about it. And you know, I, I critique the the solutions they reach and the analysis that they might have. But the act of doing that itself, I think, has been quite exceptional and, and inspirational. Um, and I think that's why I just haven't given up on the communities. Uh, I still engage with it because I think they they ask all of the right questions. Um, and I think my sort of you know final wish would be that to to not see Bitcoin as the first thing that is critiquing these things and to say okay, Bitcoin is my window into these questions, but there are decades, in some cases centuries of literature that have been critiquing the same systems, the same problems, and so how do we, you know find overlaps in those uh, rather than I think too many people think that, oh, this is the first time I've heard of this. And so my only way forward now is through Bitcoin versus mm-hmm. I think people need to explore along with Bitcoin, the literature, you know, I would say from the leftist perspective that has been talking about the same issues and crises for, for many, many decades, if not centuries. Yeah. So proof of work, as people like to say (laughs) all the time in the Bitcoin community, but like actually doing it, actually getting into the nuance and studying it and and getting outside of that Twitter community that what whatever, whatever it is, right? And and seeing the complexities here. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. I want to thank you for taking the time today. This was really great. I've got a lot to think about even after this one. um, And we'll have to do this again sometime. But is is there anywhere you want to point people to? We'll include all this in show notes in terms of things you're thinking about, uh, work you're doing, things like that? Uh, yeah, I think my Twitter is where I you know, share my daily dose of Doom's news every day. But uh, my Substack, Fisher's Capital, is where I you know, take a step back from politics and all those things and just try to explain basic systems, systemic concepts like energy, raw materials, supply chains, money, um, just so that we can try and create a shared sense, a shared fact base before then we start disagreeing on what to do about, about things. So yeah, Substack is where I have my more serious work, but for the should post me Great. That's awesome. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, folks, be sure to check out uh, tomorrow's writings and appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>